recent weeks on the Lean Out podcast, we've been exploring the issue of declining fertility in rich countries. And Canada is not exempt from this trend. Canada's fertility rate has been dropping for years and is now at 1.4 births per woman, well below population replacement levels. And my guest on the program today argues that these statistics represent a world of hidden personal pain. The think tank she's a fellow at recently conducted research that found that nearly half of Canadian women at the end of their reproductive years have had fewer children than they wanted. Andrea Morozik is a senior fellow with Cardis Family. Andrea Mrozek is my guest today on Lean Out. Andrea, welcome to Lean Out. Well, thanks so much for having me. So nice to have you on. You and I first began corresponding after I spoke at a Cardis event, and we met in person recently at a Cardis mm-hmm. panel that you sat on in Ottawa. And I have to say, this panel has really stayed with me. The panel was on fertility in Canada, and both you and the demographer Lyman Stone were referencing a recent Cardis report. Um, I was surprised there's very little up-to-date data on women's fertility in this country. And so this report is pretty significant. To start today, walk me through the broad strokes on the state of fertility in this country right now. What do we know at this point? Right. So globally, of course, we're seeing the dwindling fertility trend, something you've touched on quite a lot in this podcast. Um, in Canada, we have the book Empty Planet speaking to that from Ibbotson and Bricker, of course. So basically, Canada is no different on the dwindling fertility front. Um, Several decades ago, 40s to the 60s, the ideals around childbearing were three or four children. Um, That dropped to two or three children in the 1980s. And then by the 90s in Canada, you're seeing that intentions are well below ideals. Women are saying they want to have two or three children and are not actually doing that. So With the CARDIS survey, um, which we partnered with Lyman Stone on, we asked women specifically about their fertility desires and intentions. And what we found is not terribly surprising, I suppose, but it it is also an unspoken topic. It's not really talked about in these terms, but uh, 50% of women, so half of women would like to have more children than they are currently having. We did ask a broad uh, group of women, 3,000 Canadian women, some born in Canada, some not, and that was the result. So Canadian fertility is really the lowest it's ever been at 1.4 children per per woman. Replacement is, of course, um, 2.1, which every developed country would now be striving for. A different way of putting that is that for Every two Canadian women you meet, um, one is likely to end up with a a so-called missing child, a child she would have wanted to have but did not have. And then further, the survey is filled with data on, you know, breakouts by ethnicity and geographic representation across the country. But we also did correlate that with unmet happiness goals. So the happiness hit is actually highest for women who say they had more children than they wanted. Um, but that's just a very, very thin sliver of women in Canada. So the larger percentage is quite obviously these women who say they want to have more children and 
don't. Um, and unfortunately, I think today, just talking about that is controversial. Usually the sort of popular consensus is that low fertility is a matter of women's choice. And this is what we want. This is a good thing. It's progress. Um, it's, it's broadly viewed as being progressive. So we can talk about that a bit later. But those are the survey results in the broad strokes. Mm -hmm. it, it is really interesting because it fits quite well with what I hear anecdotally from women all the time, that women are not having as many children as they'd like. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons for this. Now, I would assume that both the housing crisis and the precarity of work would be driving this. But you identify a number of other reasons. What are some of the reasons that you looked at behind this mm -hmm. trend? Right. So that was a key question in the survey. We definitely asked about factors that are influencing women's fertility. We asked women who want to have children um, uh, why they say they won't in the next two years. And in that answer, we got, it's such a diversity of, of answers that came out through that question. There's just a lot of complexity. I do, I do agree. Most people would turn to sort of economic constraints. There's a lack of, we would think it's a lack of um, benefits, perhaps childcare um, money, but I'll just list the top five. That's probably the easiest way of diving into the conversation. The top five influences on not having kids when you say you want them in the next two years are the number one reason was wanting to grow as a person, certainly very broad. Um, the desire to save money, a need to focus on career, the notion and idea that kids require intense care. And then the fifth reason was the inability to find a suitable partner. And then rounding out the top 10 would be things like a desire for leisure, living with parents still in school. So it's really a mix of what we might call life course factors, lifestyle that I put trying to find a partner in that category. But then of course, there's the education factors and we're in school for so long these days that partners with, to my mind anyways, with the desire to save money, which is certainly clearly a financial factor. So it's not one thing that's preventing women from having the kids they want. It's a whole host of things that culminate in a kind of a, a life course, missing life script factors is the way I see it. Mm. And I, I do want to talk about this cultural life scripts idea, because I think that's such a powerful one. And certainly when I think about the women of our generation, I mean, the new script that we have it really concentrates too many life events in the early 30s. I mean, the idea that you would have finished school and paid off loans and be pushing super hard in your career, and then also at the same time, finding a partner and getting married and establishing a home and caring for small children, like it, it's no surprise that this is really difficult to achieve. Walk us through what the cultural life script currently is. I think it's really helpful to kind of name what it is and then how you see that not serving women well. So the cultural life script was once, for better or for worse, not too long ago that you finish school and whatever level that might be, get married and have kids and usually in that order. Um, and today one could even say we don't have a life script anymore. If we do, it really it goes from finishing school, which can take forever and then fades out. So you're kind of left <laughs> developing yourself for any amount of time, a long period of time. Once you finish the school, you're paying it off. So life script is really altered very dramatically. And with that, I think left a lot of the um, markers into adulthood 
that would help us move forward and out of adolescence into lives of our own. So um, markers into adulthood can be having kids, getting married, having kids, but can also be th other things that are missing. So fertility is tied to religiosity for sure. And we aren't a religious culture anymore. You know, you used to have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or a confirmation that kind of said, you're not a kid anymore, you're entering into adulthood. So extended adolescence is a thing. Um, life scripts these days for women of our generation, I'm born in the late 70s, um, you know, involved a, a whole lot of schooling, uh, sort of a supposition that family will just happen, but really career is what you want to work on. And growing as a person, most consequentially, appeared to exclude family life. And so you see so many women saying, I need to grow as a person, but then Today, now, as a woman in my late 40s, I'm thinking family life is a key way to grow as a person, mm. um, but we kind of exclude those two things. And there's other aspects too, right? Like with a lack of a marriage culture, I think we move um, fertility uh, becomes a quite a different discussion. You quite obviously want to be talking to teenagers about not getting pregnant, but there is no point at which we switch from discussions of birth control into fertility as a cultural good as something that is broadly positive, as something that everybody can do. So there's something, a little bit of a lingering sense of fertility as pathology, which is an interesting theme, something we need to fix and very tightly control. Um, but yeah, life script is, is so drastically altered as to be possibly non-existent. And the benefits are that we get endless choices. And then the drawbacks are that we get endless choices. <laughs> and, uh, it can be really hard to navigate all those choices. For sure. And this idea of personal development, I think, is is really, really interesting, too. I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms until I was sitting at that panel and, and listening to what you all were talking about. And this idea that we um, that we need to work on ourselves and that if we are not sort of emotionally evolved, we're not ready um, for marriage or children. And this is some sort of reward um, for doing the work, quote unquote. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? Because that is so prevalent, but it does not really get articulated. Yeah, I think, um, well, I'm I'm familiar with this. Con we're, we're, we're talking a bit about the notion of kids as capstone kids, something you do when you're ultimately very, very ready. I'm really more familiar with this idea um, in the marriage domain. So there's quite a lot of marriage research and literature talking about um, marriage having become a capstone item in life, a nice to have, but not necessary, a little bit of a luxury good. And of course, it sounds quaintly conservative, um, old fashioned, but marriage and fertility, partnering, stability and partnership and fertility are still very linked. So I think when we come to view marriage as something that you only do when you're perfectly ready, we are in effect delaying our fertility options as well. Everything in the life script today that exists sort of says, you need to take a lot of time on some of these aspects of your life. And then fertility, of course, is for women more tightly delineated in a specific time frame that cannot be done all at once, as you sort of properly outlined at the beginning. It's a very difficult task anyway to do that all at once. But yeah, I, I view the, the capstone kids idea as, as being linked to the, the capstone marriage idea. The loss of marriage culture, in short, is specifically contributing to our loss of fertility because we want to be partnered with someone stable and um, someone who's sticking around before we enter into the project of having children. 
Mm -hmm. And I mean, really, marriage in our lifetime has collapsed, particularly for the working class. It seems to have held a little bit more steady for the economic elites. What does it mean when marriage and family and children and connection becomes a luxury good? Yeah, uh, it's such a tough thing. And we're all experiencing it, right? You never say, uh, I wanted to sign up for a life of social isolation. I don't know whether it's the mythology of health and we think we're going to be healthy and young forever. I certainly had friends who said at their 40s that they were considering having kids. And I'm thinking now today, especially being closer to 50, right? Like, if you're 40, you should really get on that. If you're thinking about it, now's the time to stop thinking and do it, right? Um, the I, I just, yeah, I, I it really comes down to a web, a network of issues coming together that fail women in specific ways in our biology and an attitude towards fertility that is sort of marginally hostile um, and suggests that it is only something to be done under those perfect circumstances. And that's those perfect circumstances never arise. Um, it's it's an interest. The choice rubric for fertility is a very difficult one. I know that when I was um, I had I got married very late in life and then uh, had two miscarriages. I gave up on having kids all told and then suddenly got pregnant. So I have a daughter and I had her one month shy of 43. But having had those miscarriages, I had moved into a different phase and I thought I'm not having kids. And then when I got pregnant, I actually thought to myself rather hilariously, like, oh, is now the right time? I don't know if I can <laughs> do this. What does this mean? So those questions are very pervasive and it doesn't even matter. I was stably partnered. I was married. I was had done the career. I had all the factors that make it the perfect time. And yet I did have this sort of shook my head. What does this mean for me? Um, so yeah, the choice framework makes it, I think, very intense and mm -hmm. difficult. And that intensity um, that you're referring to, part of that is, I mean, as women's careers have become more front and center, at the very same time that that's happened, parenting itself has become more intense. And this is something that you refer to, this view of parenting as like really overwhelming task to be performed. Um, and you can see why. I mean, kids have tons of activities. It's very competitive for kids growing up now. And uh, there is this view that they need constant supervision and constant shuttling around. And um, but but that idea that having kids is such an intense undertaking probably isn't serving us so well. Yeah, and of course, just um, without looking at any of the research on the increasing number of hours we spend on our on our children today, in spite of using professional childcare, there's still a rising number of hours that parents spend with their kids. I mean, just at a very basic intuitive level, you know that if you only have one kid, you're spending a lot of time on that kid. So in a sense, our low fertility is also creating this vicious circle of more intensity. Um, if you had four kids, you'd spend 25% of your limited attention and capacity on each child, right? So in a way, I do think that low fertility is perpetuating a circle of low fertility. It's difficult to see how you get out of it when all the examples around you are of low fertility and there are a few children around you. Um, and then the children you do see, as you asked about, you know, are it's a quite an intense process to parent those kids. Um, it is, of course, fair to say that parenting is by its nature intense. I don't think anybody should downplay that. There's responsibilities associated with it. That's 
partly how we move out of our extended adolescence is we now need to take care of another human being. But that's not quite what we're talking about. It's the notion that there are very high requirements to have a child be successful. You're not doing the music classes because it is fun or because your kid loves to bang around on a little drum. You're doing it because it's going to create skills that allow them to participate in the right schools and, and end up in the right places. So, you know, the kids may love it, all the activities, but the parents are super stressed and schlepping their kids right, left and center. And frankly, a lot of that isn't even possible with a larger family. You can imagine in a bygone era, you're not going to be driving four or five kids out to various activities every night of the week. So the high level of scheduling can be intense. And again, I find that really interesting that it's this is the case of higher numbers of hours apparently spent parenting in surveys, even when we do outsource uh, childcare to professionals. So it's kind of a bit of a, a contrast. And one would think, in theory anyways, that if you use childcare all day, your life has become less stressful, not more. But that is not what the research is showing us or pointing to. Mm. And you you mentioned earlier in the conversation, I mean, this topic is third rail, particularly for mm-hmm. politicians in this country, which I find kind of mind boggling. Why do you think that there is not a robust conversation in this country about fertility rates? Yeah, it's totally third rail. I just I've been to panels, political panels where the question of dwindling demography will come up and anything but women having more children will be discussed. I think this survey we did should help a little bit because we're reflecting women's desires and the desire shows a good portion uh, are hoping to have more kids than we have. In part, I think that we can't talk about it because I've long believed there's a a branch of feminism, maybe I'll call them funded feminists. I'm not, they just don't represent women's interests writ large. And there tends to be a bit of I'm struggling for terms here. There certainly is not one feminism in this world. There are many feminisms, but whatever type of representation women are getting and amongst our political elites in the media is is not broadly representative of the desire for women to have families in partnership in concert with other factors in their lives. So I'm on a number of different email lists where the focus for women is exclusively on getting more women onto corporate boards or getting more women into parliament, representation should be equal, this kind of thing. And I'm not saying any of that is bad. I just think it's completely one-sided. And it allows the family aspect that is so critical for so many of us to be completely avoided. And it becomes a third rail in that sense that you can't talk about it at all. Um, I know that recently, one of the voices that understands dwindling demography in Canada continue to sort of push on the idea of low fertility as progress. And my view is that there's as much pain tucked into that as there is progress. Mm. Um, But of course, speaking of pain, that's another reason why we don't talk about it is because it is so deeply personal. And it is, I think the pain tucked in there is probably part of the reason why it's third rail and we don't want to talk about it because it's difficult and you don't want to be pushing those buttons in public. But um, if we were to begin to talk openly about that being as much pain as progress, which our survey pretty much shows, you've got 50% of women saying they want more kids. It's not every woman, but that's a good chunk of women, right? Mm. Um, If we're able to talk more openly about that reality and a little more data focused, then perhaps it would be uh, less of a third rail emotional issue. Mm. 
It's so striking to me how personal this is for all of us. I mean, I recently had Anna Louis Sussman on the podcast, and she was doing reporting in South Korea about their low fertility rate. And in that piece, she talks about freezing her eggs. Uh, Mary Harrington was recently on the podcast, and she talked about having a child and and what an incredible uh, life-changing perspective that was. And for you and I, I mean, it's very personal for both of us. We both met our partners later in life. You had a child. I wasn't so lucky. I've been very open about how hard that has been for me. What do you think we need to be telling this next generation of women? Like, how do we have a more open conversation about this? Well, you're starting it here with um, conversations such as this one. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that and talking about what it means to either narrowly miss or miss out on the aspects of family life that one thought one would have. It, it does need to be included in the public discussion. So um, kudos to you for taking that on. I think other aspects you know, of that include getting into the familial mode of feminism and, and understanding that strong women, feminist women, women in favor of women's rights, and all that entails in the modern world, also desire to have families. And these two, it's not a shameful thing to want to have a family, right? Um, To have that bigger conversation is so important. Um, And I have always really hesitated to want to talk about anything personal in this domain myself. Um, But I have to assume there's people on the public policy side who are struggling through the bigger questions. I'm sure the Ministry of Finance knows that we don't have a we have a dwindling tax base, for example. So then it becomes a little bit um, incumbent on me to talk about how much having a daughter has meant to me in the right way and with the right audience. Women who want to have children don't need to hear me and and haven't had children don't need to hear me gush about that. But maybe um, a younger generation who's kind of been led into a zone of thinking it doesn't matter, maybe they would benefit from hearing someone not, uh, not, you know, it had to come from the right source, I think, right? Like if you're, if you've got kind of a really conservative dad who's saying, go out there and have kids, that's probably going to actually cause you to do the opposite. But something about aunts or sisters, older sisters going before to talk about uh, what it means to have a kid when you narrowly missed it, that's my zone. And I do feel it's something I do want to talk about a bit more for the sake of people who are unsure about what their path should bring and how to achieve that. Mm. And I just want to pull back now to close and, and just talk a little bit about the state of feminism. You have a wonderful piece for Comment Magazine, and you're arguing that it's it's really time for women to rethink feminism. And we're seeing this huge movement right now of within feminism to question the ethos of liberal feminism and to be critical of the changes brought by the sexual revolution. And you're seeing women, conservative women, women from the left, coming together to have this really important conversation. And you cite a a number of examples, Mary Harrington, Mary Eberstadt, um, who's also been on this podcast. And you write, these are good times to be a non-status quo feminist. What are a few of the hopeful signs that you're seeing? Just that. I just feel so, I've never met these women. I just feel like I'm part of an online community where I can feel encouraged. This nascent developing and so smart, thoughtful approach to sexual ethics is so deeply encouraging to me. I know you chatted with Mary Harrington. She's absolutely brilliant. Um, and I just, I feel like 
listening to her. She's really engaging the ideas of family, sexual ethics, uh, even the birth control pill, these sorts of things in a, in a new and unpredictable way. Too long, I think it's been one-sided discussion. You had social conservatives, which some will call me, um, exclusively talking about, you know, ethics of life and family goods and this sort of thing. But I think it's really broadening out. And in part, the reason for that is a whole lot of pain tucked into ethics of the sexual revolution. And um, I'm thinking of Christine Emba, who's written uh, a whole book delineating the, the collapse of dating culture. Forget about the collapse of marriage culture. We saw that in a secular way in the mainstream world with the Me Too movement, just a lot of pain tied in to the basics of our relationships and relating to possible partners. So I just am so deeply encouraged by those women you mentioned. They've been doing a lot of good work, some of them religious, some of them not, some of them liberals, some of them conservatives. Um, and I think coming together to identify that new way forward, it's pretty clear to me that something is happening. And that is in itself very, very encouraging to read about. Hmm. Well, that is a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for this conversation today. It's really wonderful to get to talk about this with you. Yeah, thank you for having this conversation. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Mm-hmm.